This is the word of the Lord from Hosea chapter 8. Put the horn to your mouth. One like an eagle comes against the house of the Lord because they transgress my covenant and rebel against my law. Israel cries out to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They have installed kings, but not through me. They have appointed leaders, but without my approval. They make their silver and gold into idols for themselves, for their own destruction. Your calf idol is rejected, Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For this thing is from Israel. A craftsman made it, and it is not God. The calf of Samaria will be smashed to bits. Indeed, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. There is no standing grain. What sprouts fails to yield flour. Even if they did, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the nations like discarded pottery. Amen. Thanks, Jenny. Doesn't Jenny do a great job reading the scriptures? I know. I'm like, if that was her, if her voice was on like an audio Bible app, I would purchase that add-on. So thank you. Pete, make it happen. Uh, My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome. Glad to have you joining us on this first Sunday of Advent. Um, I want to deal with something controversial right off of the gate, right out of the gate. These are bison, not buffalo. If you speak of these as buffalo on my sweater, I will fight you because buffalo are in Africa and in Asia. North American bison, though they have been called buffalo for hundreds of years, are not actually buffalo. I'm just here to set the record straight. I read it on the internet, therefore it is true. So, but it is, you know, it's Advent. Sometimes I wait until later in the season to bust out the bison sweater. And uh, I'm like, no, this year has been so challenging and difficult. I'm breaking out the bison sweater in week one of Advent, doggone it. So, uh, all right, now that that's out of the way, I actually had Ginny's husband came and argued with me after the first service about that. Uh, it was quite delightful. So talk about that in your community groups this week. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and the word Advent, if it's unfamiliar to you, the word Advent just simply means arrival. Advent is an arrival. You can, we talk about the, you know, the arrival of the digital age, the, the advent of the internet, or however we might use that word. Advent just simply means arrival, and for us as Christians, it is a season to reflect on the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Redeemer, the one who was promised by God so long ago to come and bring rescue and healing and redemption into a fractured and broken world. And so now we, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is that long-promised Messiah. And so Advent is a season where we look back on his first coming, his first arrival, with anticipation and with eagerness And we now, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, we are now looking forward to his second advent, to the return of Jesus when he will make all things new and bring restoration and wholeness and peace to a broken and fractured world. How many of you long for the return of Jesus? So we are in between the two advents, his first coming and his second coming. And and, and, and as I was thinking about the advent series for this year, About a month ago, a month and a half ago, 
I was thinking about that idea of just waiting, like how long until, how long do we have to wait? And how many of you would agree with the sentiment that 2020 has been a year of how long? Uh, yeah. So I, I, I did a little study. I, I pulled open the Bible software that I have, and I just started running a phrase search for how long. And, and you start to see that that phrase, how long, is used all throughout, particularly the, the section of the scriptures we would call the prophets. It's this time where the prophets, the Psalms as well, but in the prophets especially, where the prophets are, are, are speaking to uh, an Israel that has been unfaithful to God. They have not held up their end of the covenant. They have not held up their end of the agreement between God and Israel. And so they're crying out, how long are things going to still be broken? And I started pulling out these different verses and these different phrases. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it was in our scripture reading today. How long will Israel be incapable of innocence? Or, or how long will injustice reign in the society? Or how long will the priests and the leadership of the people of God fail to do their duty? And so I started pulling these things out. And, and boy, it sure had the makings of a real chipper and upbeat holiday sermon series. But that's what we're going to do for these next four weeks. Today and the next three, we're going to ask this question, how long? How long will there be injustice in our society? How long will the church of Jesus Christ seem to uh, shoot herself in the foot and bring reproach upon the name of Christ? How long until Jesus returns and fixes everything once and for all? But today we're going to look individually at our own hearts. We're going to get bigger picture as we go. Society, the church, the entire cosmos. Today is individual and personal. So would you pray with me as we prepare to dive into Hosea chapter 8? Lord, we love you. And we thank you that your love for us is greater and stronger than our love for you. Lord, we confess that our love falters and wavers. And were it not for your steadfast and faithful love, we would have certainly wandered away. But you are the good shepherd who comes and chases us down and you hold us securely in the palm of your hand. And so for that, we thank you. And Lord, I ask today that you would give us the courage to bring our hearts into the light. Lord, where we want to cover the sins and the unfaithfulness in our heart, we want to we wrap it up with Christmas paper and bows. Lord, would you help us to open it up to your light, not only so that it could be seen for, for what it really is, but so that it could be healed by the light of your truth and your goodness and your love for us. For myself, Lord, would you guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word, and for all of us, give us teachable and receptive hearts right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so for you who are followers of Jesus, you don't need to raise your hands or, or acknowledge. I'm just going to ask some questions. And I want you to let me know if you've ever said something kind of like this. Why did I do that? I didn't want to do that. What, what, what is going on in my own heart? Like I'm all... Ugh, like I'm all messed up inside, but I don't even know why. I don't even know what's going on. What was I thinking? Like, I, like that was very irrational. What was I thinking? I know better than that. Or, or how about this one? Still? I'm still struggling with this? I've been walking with the Lord for this long, and I'm still stepping on that same landmine? I'm still falling into that same ditch? I mean, for me... 
I was quite literally raised in church. My parents met Jesus when I was three years old. The midwife who caught me at my birth invited them to church and led them to the Lord. I didn't have a choice but to grow up in church. My dad planted a church. I've been walking with the Lord since I was a kid. I went to some Christian schools for the most part. I, I was raised in kids' ministry and Sunday school. I had, to, I had to wear a necktie and memorize verses from the King James Bible, doggone it. Don't let the tattoos and the earrings fool you. I, I had a good Baptist upbringing at times. Uh, and like I, I say this to myself, like, Really? Really? I've been walking with the Lord this long, and some of you are, are older than me. Some of you have been walking with the Lord longer than I've even been alive, and you're asking the same thing. Really? I'm still struggling with this sin? Anybody with me? <sighs> and then, you have to reckon with this reality that one of the great challenges of being a follower of Jesus is that there is ongoing sin in our lives. There's remaining indwelling sin. Yes, we are saved by grace. It is not through works. It is the work of Jesus on our behalf. And then you get these glorious promises from like the Apostle Paul where he says, you know, you are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. That's all true and good. Amen, right? But then you sit there and you're looking at yourself like, why am I still struggling with this sin. And then sometimes it can be particularly hard when you come across verses, uh, we were talking about this as a staff earlier this week. First John 3, for example. The one who commits sin is of the devil. Ooh, that's weighty. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Well, that's good. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Because if, and just, again, on the surface reading, it's like, what? Like, if I've been born of God, I shouldn't sin? Because God's seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. Like, oh, maybe. I mean, I've had people sitting in my office at times with tears. Maybe I'm not actually saved. Maybe I'm not actually born of God. 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul issues this rebuke. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, you know how messed up they were. This rebuke comes. Or, or even the words of our Lord Jesus himself from the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You should just pray and dismiss us right now. Can we feel the weight of that? It's heavy, isn't it? The, the, the burden, the weight of law to, to be able to carry that. It's just so heavy. So this Advent season, in particular today, I want to answer a question. How does, how does Christmas help us with this problem? How does the birth of Jesus help us come to terms with this pro- problem? And so, again, I mentioned the, the prophets, the prophets, uh, specifically one prophet today that I want to look to is the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea, and by the way, when we say prophets, a lot of times in our cultural conception of prophecy, we think about prediction, right? Prophetic prediction. And while there are certainly predictions in the the Old Testament prophets, that's not the defining feature. Really what the prophets would do is they were truth-tellers. 
They were people who would speak truth to power. They were people who would really, truly kind of cut through the nonsense and speak, you know, the words of God. And in fact, in, in, in a society that had widespread unfaithfulness to God, it was the prophet's role to show up and to call people to covenant faithfulness to call them to do what God had instructed them to do. And a lot of the kings and rulers did not like the prophets. They were pretty unpopular. I can't remember which king it was, but there's one king that's like, hey, call for me a prophet. I need some wisdom about, no, 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 not that one prophet. He never says anything good about me. Call the prophet that I like, the one that says all the good things about me. Like they didn't like the prophets. The prophets were persecuted. The prophets were harassed. The prophets were often put to death. So Hosea is a prophet. He's in the Northern tribes of Israel. You guys remember in the storyline of the Hebrew scriptures, there's a united kingdom under David and Solomon, but after Solomon, it splits in the northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribes of Judah. When we studied the book of Daniel, we looked a lot at the southern tribes of Judah. Hosea is writing to the northern tribes of Israel, or Ephraim. And if you thought the southern tribes of Judah were bad, boy, go back and read the books of Kings and Chronicles and focus on the northern tribes. They are really bad. There's like zero good kings, approximately, Okay? And just widespread unfaithfulness. And so God calls a prophet named Hosea. And he, he, the, the book of Hosea is really unique. The, the, the later 10 chapters are kind of what you would consider, you know, standard Old Testament Hebrew poetic prophecy. But the first few chapters are, are more of a story in which God calls the prophet Hosea to marry a woman And God tells Hosea that this woman is going to be habitually unfaithful. Habitually serial adulterer. And it's this kind of mind-blowing thing that God then says to Hosea. He's like, essentially, I have been a perfect husband to Israel, and Israel has been a serial adulterer. And, and, And God, like, invites the prophet Hosea to experience what it's like for God to be cheated on, essentially. Pretty radical, pretty radical uh, book of the Bible. So in this passage in Hosea, there's a main problem. Hosea, inspiration of the Holy Spirit speaking through Hosea, identifies the main problem. We'll pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 8. It says, They have installed kings, but not through me. They have appointed leaders, but without my approval. They make their silver and gold into idols for themselves, for their own destruction. Your calf idol is rejected, Samaria. My anger burns against them. Samaria is that northern region. And then here's our, here's our phrase. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For this thing is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It's not God. The calf of Samaria will be smashed to bits. The prophet Hosea identifies the main problem, the main thing. Why? How long will they be incapable of innocence? How long will their hearts go astray? The, the, the main fundamental problem is idolatry. Now, you and I are 21st century 
most all of us Westerners, we're very rational and we're very enlightened. And this idol thing sounds distant and ancient and foreign. Maybe some of you have traveled to other parts of the world and you've been able to see cultures that still literally set up and erect statues. I mean, we would never set up statues and, and, and offer them gifts and sacrifices. We set up a TV and we call it American Idol and we send them money through our advertising dollars. It's totally different, right? The, the concept of idolatry feels a little bit foreign. It feels a little bit strange, especially when you think of it as like setting up actual statues. But one of the other prophets, a prophet named Ezekiel, he, he talks about in one of his uh, prophetic warnings to the people of, 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 of Israel, he says these men have set up idols in their hearts. So even back then, even back then, the prophets were saying it's not about the statue, it's about something else grabbing a hold of your heart. That's what idolatry is. It's there's something I want, there's something I need, there's something I think that will satisfy me, there's something that I will give my primary allegiance to. It's an idol in the heart. Tim Keller is a pastor and author who's written a fantastic book on this subject. It's called Counterfeit Gods. I highly recommend it. He says this, the biblical concept of idolatry is an extremely sophisticated idea integrating intellectual, psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual categories. The old pagans were not fanciful when they depicted virtually everything as a god. They had sex gods, work gods, war gods, money gods, nation gods, for the simple fact that anything can be a god that rules and serves as a deity in the heart of a person or in the life of a people. In fact, it might be worth mentioning that most of the things that we set up as idols in our heart are actually good things in and of themselves. So, so take, for example, um, something that I see commonly here in the suburbs where we live is the idol of family. Now, quick question. Is family a good thing? This is not a trick question. Is family, like, kids are a blessing from the Lord. Uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I am not trying to trick you, Sound City Bible Church. Somebody at home on the live stream right now is just yelling at their TV. No, it's good, right? But in the suburbs, do you... Sometimes we can idolize family where everything revolves around the kids have ballet and the kids have swimming and the kids have soccer and the kids have gymnastics and we can't do any, we can't serve the church because we have family and we can't do... Like, it's just, it becomes the most important thing in life. A good thing turns into a God thing. Or another example would be money, right? Again, not trying to trick you. Is money a bad thing? No, money is not a bad thing. The, the Lord Jesus, uh, you know, the riches of heaven, right? Like he, the money in and of itself. By the way, you, some of you think the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. It does not say that. What does it say? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That, that money is this powerful tool that can be used to take care of people and to advance the gospel and to, to make life uh, just you know, God-glorifying. But when it takes root in our hearts, it becomes an idol. So there's personal idols, romance, family, money, power, accomplishment, social standing, health. Health can be an idol. Beauty. There's societal idols like, like military power or economic prosperity or hard work or duty or liberty or self-discovery. I was even thinking that certain jobs come with the risk of certain types of idols. 
engineers could have an idol of accuracy. You know, I'm, I'm th- accuracy is a good thing, right? I drove over a bridge to get here this morning. Praise God for accurate engineers, okay? But when that becomes the most important thing, like your well-being, your emotional and psychological well-being becomes accuracy, that's an idol. I was thinking about artists and musicians. My parents bought me a book, uh, a biography of Johnny Cash, St. Johnny. That was one of the names in the suggestion box for our church when we launched it. It was Johnny Cash Bible Church. It barely, barely lost. I stuffed that ballot box hard, but we barely lost. Anyways, like artists and, and, you know, people who write these amazing songs born of tragedy and pain or whatever, but an artist could have an idol of self-expression. Idolatry is everywhere, and friends, you have idols in your heart. Why, why do we keep struggling with these things? Why do we keep stumbling into these same patterns? Because you have idols in your heart and you love them. I love them. So there's a few things we can see in Hosea here that, that hopefully will help us take this seriously. I've got four things to point out from Hosea chapter 8. The first one starting in verse 2. Israel cries out to me, my God, we know you. We know you. And that, that word know is the biblical, the Hebrew word for know is more than just an intellectual know. It's a relational sort of know. It even can stand in as a euphemism at times for a husband and wife, like knowing each other in the biblical sense. But it's a deeply relational term. We, you, you say that we know each other. Verse 9, they have gone up to Assyria, wandering off like a wild donkey going off on its own. Ephraim, northern tribes, have paid for love. And even though they hire lovers among the nations, I will now round them up and they will begin to decrease in number under the burden of the king and leaders. Point number one is this. Idolatry is adultery. It's infidelity. It is spiritual adultery against the God who has acted like the perfect husband to us. Again, this is the context of the whole book of Hosea. This story that, that God instructs the prophet to live out. And, 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 and this idea of adultery let me, let me ask a quick question. Show of hands. How many of you, and again, if you're watching from home on the stream, you have to raise your hand too. How many of you have ever read sections of the scripture and you've just felt a little bit uncomfortable when you read things about God's anger? Anybody? Be honest. Yeah, it kind of feels uncomfortable, does it? Okay, next question. Have you ever been with somebody when they found out that they had been cheated on? uncomfortable. It's painful. The, the, the God of the Bible invites us. It is just a mind-blowing thing that the God of the Scriptures invites us to view him as a spurned lover. And it provides some context for the anger. You know, when, when God's anger shows up, there, there are acts of judgment against the other nations, but, but by and large... In the Bible, when God's anger shows up, it is for his covenantal people who are cheating on him repeatedly. It doesn't make it any less uncomfortable to be around, but it maybe could help knock us off of our high horse that we could tend to get. How could God get so angry? What's wrong with God? Why is he so cranky? It is not the cranky loss of temper of some irrational angry person. It is a spurned, jilted lover who invites us to see that idolatry is infidelity and breaks 
the heart of God. Look at verse 6 with me. For this thing is from Israel. A craftsman made it, and it is not God. The calf of Samaria will be smashed to bits. Calf, maybe almost even kind of reminiscent of the golden calf. But again, there's this idol. It's, it's, it's a thing. A craftsman made it. It's not from God, which leads me to point number two, that idolatry is folly. Idolatry is, idolatry is just stupid. That's my really sophisticated pastoral point. It's dumb. D-U-M, dumb. B, dumb, right? It, it, like, like, there's a, <laughs> there's a verse in Isaiah, a different, another prophet, where Isaiah is, is kind of mocking idol worshipers. He's like, oh, you took a log, you cut it in half, and half of it you burned to make your fire for dinner, and the other half you made a nice statue and an idol. Like, good job, Israel. It's just foolish. It is foolish to seek spiritual, emotional, mental satisfaction, to seek comfort and health and well-being outside of the God, the creator of everything, and yet we just do it all the time and it's dumb. Right? My wife used the analogy this week of like, you know, it's like a, you have some problem with your house. You know, some serious issue with your house. And instead of like dealing with the issue, you just like put some, you know, hang up a poster over it. You ever seen like you walk into a room and you see like a crack in the sheetrock? Any of you know like about houses? Like you see a crack in the sheetrock. That's not a good thing. Like what, what is like, oh no, like what, what is going on there? Like a, maybe a foundation issue? It would be really stupid to say, wow, there's a problem there. Bring me the spackle and the paint, <laughs> Right? You have to dig in. I, like uh, a few months ago, one of my kids came upstairs and said, "Dad, the ceiling is dripping," and like that's never like that's never a good sentence ever. Like never. I I really thought like those nope nope still not a good opportunity to hear that sentence. So I come downstairs and I see that it's right underneath where the one bathtub. We have a few showers and then the one bathtub, and so one of the drains is leaking and it's dripping down underneath the bathtub and it's dripping into our kitchen ceiling. And I thought to my, I just for the briefest moment had the thought, well, looks like the kids aren't taking baths anymore, right? And then. My wife had a difference of opinion, and we're like, okay, fine. And so it's like opening up the sheetrock and redoing all the pl- It's a big pain. It was a big pain. Yeah, I hope you know I love you so much. So, our children are clean. Ugh, fine. That's what idolatry is like. It's like saying that the, the Lord of heaven and earth, who, who has offered us life and everything and himself, and yet we run to these stupid things for satisfaction. It's folly. Idolatry is infidelity. Idolatry is folly. Verse 7. Indeed, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. There's no standing grain. What sprouts fails to yield flour, and even if they did, the foreigners would swallow it up. Sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. Third thing about idolatry is it always grows. It always goes from small to big. It always goes from bad to worse. How many of you, again, you don't have to raise your hands, how many of you have ever been tempted when there's some sort of sin in your life or some sort of issue that you've become aware of, have been tempted to say something along the lines of, it's not that big of a deal? How many times have we heard in our culture and in our society when it comes to issues of sin or morality, what's the big deal? Why are you Christians so uptight? What's the big deal? 
The nature of sin is like a cancer. It will not stop unless acted upon by an outside force. And when we give place to it, when we poo-poo it, we, we are sowing seeds into the wind looking like we might reap the whirlwind. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite British preachers in the 1800s, he says, we are all sowing, brethren. We cannot help it. You sisters, too, are sowing. As we are all sowing, the great question we have to consider is, what will the harvest be? Every wise man will ask himself that question. What have I sown and what shall I reap? What sheaves shall I gather into the garner? Sheaves of fire that shall burn into my soul forever or sheaves of glory that I shall bring with rejoicing in the last day? Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. What are you sowing? Idolatry always wants more. Start out with a little statue and before you know it's 40 foot tall. Last one, verse 11. Look at verse 11 and 12. When Ephraim multiplied his altars for sin, they became his altars for sinning. (laughs) Uh, Like the altar, the thing that is supposed to help take away sin. Sacrifices, the thing that God gave to his people to bring cleansing and purification for their sin, just multiplied the sin. Verse 12, though I were to write out for him 10,000 points of my instruction, they would be regarded as something strange. Point number four about idolatry, religious behavior won't fix it. Religious activity, religious behavior, do better, try harder, sit up straight, eat your vegetables, mind your P's and Q's, keep your nose clean, stay away from bad people. That doesn't fix the problem. Though I were to write down 10,000 points of instruction, I can tell you what you're doing wrong. Listen, I'm not good at a, a lot of things. One thing I'm pretty good at is telling you what you're doing wrong, okay? And some of you have that same spiritual gift, okay? I get those emails, right? Does that, how, how many of you have ever had that like really work? Like that really work? And, and listen, this might be one of the hardest points for you to actually believe me. It might be one of the hardest ones for you to swallow because, you know, as Americans, generally speaking, we believe the, this idea that if you set your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. If you try hard enough, you can succeed. We've, we've lived in this meritocracy, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, I was, especially me and my generation, we have been spoon-fed a diet of nothing but just believe in your dreams, attempt your dreams, reach for the stars. You guys know what I'm talking about? I wanted to play in the NBA. I am five foot nine on a good day. It really didn't go the way I planned when I was 12 years old. I've tried to stop having idols in my heart. I've tried to stop sinning in those ways. I've, I've looked myself in the mirror and said, what's wrong with you, Aaron? And I've sat with people and, and I've done this. I'm, sadly, I've done this as a pastor sometimes. We'll stop that sinning behavior. Just knock it off. Religious behavior won't fix it. We need to be acted upon by an outside force to solve the problem. It's adultery. It's foolish. It always grows and always wants more, and you can't fix it with moral effort and religious behavior. Boy, this is a big problem, is it not? So what is the solution? Turn over to Hosea chapter 11. 
Chapters 9 and 10 are stern words of rebuke. Again, stern words of consequences for covenantal unfaithfulness. And they're all justified. And as difficult as they might be to read, God is perfectly righteous and holy. So you get this problem in chapter 8, you get 9 and 10, you get these two chapters of rebuke. Chapter 11 starts out this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him. So now we're, we're switching metaphors. This is no longer the metaphor of the husband-wife. Now we're using the metaphor of the parent-child, like we just sang about in that song, Adoption. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I, I called my son. This is about the Exodus. That God's people were enslaved in Egypt, and I, I called them out, I rescued them. But Israel was calling back to the Egyptians even as we're leaving. Like they just couldn't stop sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Like even as I'm trying to adopt them, they're still wanting to run backwards. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. You guys hearing this, it's like this big problem that still persists. And then in verse 8, there's a shift here. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are cities that are near Sodom and Gomorrah. It's kind of part of the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, judgment scene. I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. There are two things in this section of Scripture that are our deepest and ultimate hope. The first one is the character of God. When God called his people out of Egypt, he met with them at Mount Sinai. And and, and one of the most repeated sections, one of the most repeated verses in the Bible over and over again is when God declares what he is like. The Lord, he declares himself to be slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will bring, uh, the, 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 the iniquities of the father will be carried out to the third and the fourth generations, but his steadfast, faithful love for thousands of generations. That yes, God will get angry, but he is slow to anger. And when he gets angry, his anger, which seems so huge, is dwarfed, like like orders of magnitude in the hundreds, third and fourth generation, thousands of generations, his steadfast love and kindness. So there is great hope here in the character of God that even when we have been unfaithful, even when we have wandered, even when we have strayed, even when we have been foolish, even when we have been unfaithful, that his character is love and kindness and mercy, and steadfastness to us because he is God and not a man. That's really good news. The other piece of good news, though, is he says, I will not come in rage. I will not come to you. There's this prophetic promise of the coming of God. 
And back in verse one, it said, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And this Christmas season, some of you may recall the story of Jesus' birth as it's told by Matthew. And Matthew tells a story of Jesus being promised to, to marry an angelic visitation. And then another angel goes to Joseph and says, hey, I know, I know this is crazy, but she's going to have a child and you're to marry her and you're to, to, to call his name Jesus and all this stuff. And, 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 then, and then the wise men show up, right? The wise men, the magi from the east, you know, these, these Persian uh, Zoroastrian astrologers who probably got told about the promised Messiah from Daniel, but that's another sermon for another time. And, and they come and they, they give him gifts and they bow down and they worship him and fulfilling the, the prophecies about, about the, the nations will stream to the light of the Messiah. And then Herod, this wicked King Herod, he interviews the Magi. He's like, what, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, oh, the King of Israel, the true Messiah has been born. And Herod says, I don't like that. And I, I want to wipe out any rival claims to the throne. And so he, he orders that all of the, 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 the children, two years old and younger, are to be killed and to be, to be uh, executed mercilessly so that there would be no rival claims to the throne. And so uh, an angel comes to Joseph and warns him of the danger. It says, you got to get out of here. you got to flee. And so Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. So Joseph got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. They went all the way back down to Egypt. And he stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. The hope is that if Israel was God's son who was unfaithful, we need a new and better son who can come. And friends, his name is Jesus. Jesus is God's perfect son who never bowed down in his body or in his heart to idols, that Jesus lived the perfect life that all of us have failed to live, that Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father, that Jesus was perfectly faithful to the covenant that Israel had made with the one true God of heaven and earth. And that means that when Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, that his sacrifice is the ultimate cleansing for us because he's the perfect lamb of God. And he rose from the dead on the third day to offer us eternal life if we would just believe in him. And when we look at Jesus on the cross, not only do we see the perfect son that was called up out of Egypt, but we see the full expression of God's love. God loved the world in this way. He gave us his very son as a perfect, obedient sacrifice. Friends, you want to know how we're going to deal with this issue of just falling back into sin over and over and over again, surprise, it's Jesus. It's not trying harder. It's not whipping yourself up into a frenzy. It's being united by faith to Jesus. And by the way, a few weeks ago when Pastor Kyle was preaching on the conversion of Saul, he made a point that I'm just going to straight up steal and repurpose here because some of you are here today and you have never truly surrendered your life to Jesus, what you're doing is you're trying to live a good moral life. And going to church might be part of that, living a good moral life. But what you really need is this radical, inside-out, death-to-life conversion that Jesus alone can offer us. Because you, trying to live a good moral life, there's one of two outcomes. Number one, you're going to do a really bad job at it. 
and you're going to get sad and angry and depressed and you're just going to say, forget it, I can't do it. And you'll despair. Or even worse, you'll be good at it. And you'll be proud. And you'll be self-sufficient. And in neither one of those cases do we experience close relationship with God. Both actually drive us away from close relationship with God. The gospel alone is the hope of right relationship with God, right living, all of that. And it starts by confessing, Lord, I am a sinner. I have broken your law. I have broken your heart. And I believe that Jesus alone is the perfect son who died and who rose again to offer me salvation and new life. Friends, don't just try to live a moral life. Be united to Christ, the one who has already done it perfectly. And if we're united to him, well then, friends, that actually gives us some hope that we might be able to make some changes in our lives. 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, he's he's been talking about the gospel and everything that Jesus has done. He says, so then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So he calls us to purify ourselves and to walk it out. But did you catch that phrase? Since we have these promises. You can't do the second part of the verse without first stopping to reflect on the first part of the verse. It is not just, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity, bringing holiness to completion. It's, since Jesus did this amazing thing for us, we now have hope to start to get to work, to put this sin to death, and to live a better life tomorrow than we did yesterday. That's good news, is it not? It's more about what Jesus is going to do in us and through us, and less about our heroic moral efforts. So we've got to walk it out. We've got to walk it out. 1 John 5.21, the Apostle John says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is the last verse in the book of 1 John. The last thing he says, Hey, look, just watch out for idols. You got to put them to death. You got to smash them. Guard yourself. Watch out. So, I would like to close with a few quick points about how we can guard ourselves from idols. How do we do this? And by the way, there's a book, uh, an old Puritan preacher, John Owen, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin and Believers. It's the, it's the idea of like putting sin to death. And I started reading it. It's very dense. It's so good. And I just started, I was like, hey, maybe, maybe John Owen's got some good points for us. And I started counting how many points he had. He had a lot of points. He had a, like a lot of points. I lost count in the 80s. I gave up in the 80s, Okay. And, and my daughters, sometimes my, one of my daughters was making fun of me yesterday. She was like, I'm dad. She got a Bible off the shelf. I'm dad. I've got five points. And then I've got four more points. And I'm going to close with seven points. I got three more points. Like what? I mean, made fun of by my own daughter. So I don't have, I don't have 80 plus points. I have seven to close here. Okay. Just seven. You're welcome. Okay. Jeez. <laughs> How can we guard ourselves from idols? How can we take this gospel truth and, and, and seek to live it out? Number one, we got to have a serious attitude about this. It's too easy, like I said earlier, to minimize sin. Well, I was only this. I was just, think about this language. I was just. Well, I was just, oh, so you were justified. I thought only Jesus Christ could justify us. Got to have a serious attitude. Idolatry is spiritual cancer. If left unchecked, it will eat us alive. Like Spurgeon said, we're planting these seeds. What are we going to harvest back in? So we've got to have a serious attitude. 
Oh, I was only this. Well, it's just, it's just how I am. You know my personality type, you know. I've got a lot of Irish in me, so it's, you know, I can just be angry. It's fine, you know. Potato famines and whatnot, it's fine. No, this is, this is something really serious. This is what nailed Christ to the cross. I have a serious attitude. Number two, we've got to keep our focus on Jesus. We have to have a Messiah focus. You know how you're going to do better at like, like guarding yourself from idols and not giving in to those temptations and sins? Not by focusing on yourself and your temptations and your sins, but by focusing on Jesus. Okay, don't do this sin. Don't act this way. Don't be angry. Instead, Jesus, you are so perfectly patient with me. You are so loving to me. You, Jesus, you live the perfect life. More focus on Jesus, less focus on yourself. Number three, spirit reliance. And this is one that my wife has been so faithful to remind me of too. But as we've gone through the book of Acts, I know we're not in the book of Acts right now, but so much is only happening because of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And friends, I think for me, a Bible sort of guy, I forget just how reliant I need to be on the Holy Spirit day in and day out. If, if the Bible's the one that says the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in us. So ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Okay, stop doing this thing. No, Spirit, I need you to help me. I need to rely on you more. Number four, lifetime resolve. This is going to take a while. The good news is in that, that God is far more patient than we are. Shouldn't I be better by now? Shouldn't I be done with this? Shouldn't I be fixed by now? Really? You know, there's a, in a microwave culture, we struggle to wrap our minds around all the farming analogies in the Bible. Seeds take a long time to grow. So buckle up. This is going to take a while. One day, you will see Jesus face to face and that remaining earthly, fleshly, sinful desire will be melted away in the light of his glory. But it's going to take a while. Which leads me to number five. We're looking for some steady progress here, okay? Um, if we're going to walk this out, you know, step by step by step, I was thinking about, you know that show... Um, the biggest loser where people will do, you know, certain diets or things like that to try to compete to lose a lot of weight. And, and I read an article where they said that like almost every single time those people that were on that show have gained everything back and even then some. And the point is that these like crash and burn diets or, or you know, just whatever, like they just don't work. This has got to be something you're committed to for the rest of your life. So you need to, again, buckle up for the long run and we're looking for incremental steady progress. Man, I still lost my temper, but I, I, it's less than it used to be. And I'm not where I want to be, but it's a little bit, day by day. Number six, if you want to guard yourself from idols, you really need to have some transparent community. You really got to have some people, not only that you can share with, like you can be open with, but you need to have the people in your life that, that you have actually given permission to speak into your life where you can say, hey, can I, can I share something that I've noticed with you? Because one of the other things about idolatry, it's not in the text, but idolatry, like there's sneaky little buggers, idols. We have blind spots all over the place. So we need others in our lives who can see them and point them out. And then number seven, quick responses. Slow obedience is disobedience. Someone comes to you or the Spirit speaks to you, you got something, it's like, well, hold on, I need to like really sit and think about this. And maybe I don't, it's like, hey, Lord, help me. Help me to repent quickly. Help me to be broken quickly. Help me to, to, to turn from this. Help me to be quick to confess it. Help me to be quick to run to you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. Quick responses. So friends, take heart. Though we might struggle with sin, 
We have hope in Jesus. He has put death to death through his death. And if we're united to him, our story ends with the light of perfection in his presence. And while we live out this light, we can be quick to confess, quick to repent, and quick to experience his grace, even if we still struggle day by day. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. We'll have an opportunity to pause and reflect and, and, and on the nature of God's forgiveness and for us to confess our sins to him. But I wanted to do a, a prayer from Psalm 19, a little, a little closing prayer, a little call and response, and then I'll invite Pastor John to come lead us in communion. So if you put that up on the screen for me, if you would here. So I'll read the first part, then you can, you can read this. I, I love how this psalm points out there's unintentional sins, things that we're not even really trying, and there's willful ones that we choose, and the Lord wants to cover them both. So let's, let's do this together. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, search our hearts. We thank you that our right standing before you is not based on our great moral effort, but Jesus, your perfection. And while we struggle and while we battle, help us to take heart that you love us and that you are changing us from the inside out. Help us to trust you and be patient with the process. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.